I'm Kelly, your host. And I'm Austin Evans. And that was also Austin Evans, my husband, my hero. Wow. What a couple of cheese balls. Oh, babe. I'm so happy that you're on this podcast with me. Are you having fun? Yep. Yep. Tell me how much fun you're having. What's your favorite part? I have so much fun just listening and like talking here and there and also listening. (laughs) Good answer. I enjoy it all. A freaking plus. Try not to gulp too Yeah, I'm not going to. What are we talking about today? I'm eating Brussels sprouts. I want to hear a story. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Please try to chew away from the mic. I got that. Go ahead. This is not an ASMR. I don't even know what that stands for, but I know I don't like it. So keep your food in your mouth away from the mic. Let's roll. Okay. Are we ready for this? Today's Friday. It's Freaky Friday. We're going to be releasing new episodes every Monday and Friday for Murder Monday and Freaky Friday. And maybe Thriller Thursday or maybe Wet Wednesday where there's always... No, 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 no. Where there's people getting drowned. Interesting. Yeah. You know what? I've actually been really intrigued by cruise ship disappearances. Mm. Did you know there is actually a lot of crime that occurs on cruise ships? Who knew? Not me. Not me either. Not me. Maybe I'll do a podcast on that. The listener doesn't know. For Wet and Wild Wednesday. (laughs) And we're not talking about what you think we're talking about, because we're talking about mystery history, murder history. So, anyway, today, oh my gosh, this case is a doozy. I have had lots of people reach out and request that we cover this case. It is upsetting, so I am going to warn you. Um, let's see. It Which is a, means I'm going to be a downer by the end of this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm going to take that mood of yours and just smash it mm. on the ground. Okay. So buckle your seatbelts because I'm about to take you on a weird, wild, awful ride. This is one of the most bizarre stories I have ever come across. I mean, top five weirdest criminals. This story actually gives me the heebie-jeebies. This father-son duo is what my nightmares are made of, and that's truly saying a lot, considering I've seen some shit, and I've heard some shit, right? But this story is weird and horrifying, all rolled up into one big disappointing and infuriating tale, so without further ado, let's dive in to what has gotten me so riled up. This is the disappearance of Susan Powell. Do you know anything about this case, Father Austin? I don't know anything about this case. Well, after today you will, and I think it's going to stick with you. After today I will know about this case. (laughs) All right, so it all starts with Josh and Susan Powell. Josh was born, and I want you to look up their faces, okay? So you can put a face to My phone is charging. You can use mine. So, um, Josh was born on January 20th, 1976 to Stephen, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but Terica Powell in Puyallup, that is a hard town to say, Puyallup, 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 whatever, Washington. Growing up, Josh's home life was not exactly stable. They belonged to the LDS church, but apparently Josh's dad was not a faithful member to the church, which caused some dysfunction in his marriage. When Terika filed for divorce in 1992, she cited that Stephen was obsessed with pornography 
and would often share pornography with their three sons. What? And apparently refused to truly parent or discipline his kids. Stephen's mother-in-law described him as very anti-church, anti-country, anti-authority, anti-morality, very radical, who taught the boys to mock and insult their mother. So needless to say, this had a big effect on Josh. He already sounds like an idiot. Yeah, the dad, Stephen. An idiot. He's just a lot. Oh my God, just wait. Josh, at one point, killed one of his sister's gerbils on purpose, and another time threatened his mom with a butcher knife because she asked him to do the dishes. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, That's valid. Yeah, what a manly man. I'm already pissed. I'm getting off here. You guys have a good Friday. (laughs) (laughs) JK. JK. So when Josh became an adult, he attended the University of Washington, and while he was there, he began dating a girl named Catherine. After the two moved in together, Catherine recalls Josh becoming incredibly controlling and possessive over her. Oh, great. (laughs) She wasn't (laughs) allowed... I'm just... What? Nothing. What's so funny? You. She wasn't allowed to go see her family without him, and he tried putting a ton of rules and restrictions on her social life, but Catherine was able to leave this situation when she went to go visit a friend and literally never came back. She ended up breaking up with him over the phone. Consider it a bullet dodged, Catherine. Phew! Right over his shoulder. Her shoulder. So then at 19, Josh met Susan while attending a function at their Mormon church. Susan Cox Powell was born on October 16th of 1981 in Oregon. Susan was a warm and loving person with a big, beautiful smile and a kind, welcoming heart. Friends described her as being someone who would literally do anything for anyone. She was very selfless, perfect mother material. When Susan met Josh, their relationship progressed quite quickly. After only six months of courting, they were married in the Mormon church. That's real common, though. Mormons don't waste any time. It's real common, because they're not, they're not getting it on before. Because they want to get down, turn around. Well, what is that song? Oh, I don't know it. I don't know either. I, don't, I think I might have just messed up the lyrics even. Right on. Anyway, they're trying to just, you know, get it in. Mm-hmm. How else can you say it? I have a lot of ways I could say it, but let's continue. (laughs) Grow up. At the time, Susan was working as a cosmetologist, but ended up leaving that job to work as a broker at Wells Fargo. And Josh at the time, he was still trying to find a job. He didn't have a job. Josh's goal, however, was to become a real estate agent. So Susan got her realtor's license so that she could answer phones for him and help her husband grow his business. They had big goals, big family life goals, okay? In 2005, the couple welcomed their first son, Charlie, and just two years later, his little brother, Brayden, arrived. It's been said that Susan really hoped that having these kids would kind of mend some of the cracks in their relationship or bring them some joy. Because at the time, Josh was still struggling to hold down a decent job as a real estate agent um, because it just wasn't taking off, which we just talked about Monday when Dahlia Doolittle or whatever her name is um, was a real estate agent but was too impatient, so she, she became a prostitute. She stripping, prostitute. <laughs> oh, jeez. So anyway... 
By 2008, the couple had to file for bankruptcy. Oh, great. Claiming over... I feel like I had like a soundboard with just like various sounds. And I click this button and you go, oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Womp, womp, womp. That was a good one. That was a good one. Thank you. So anyway, they claimed over $200,000 in debts and for a short time ended up moving in with Josh's super creepy dad, Stephen Powell. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, forget it. As if things weren't hard enough for Josh and Susan, Josh's dad, Stephen, secretly started to develop an infatuation with Susan. He believes this is just this is just fantastic. (laughs) You know, my my reactions are genuine. You're womp womp womp. That's pulling it out of the keyboard. I'm being serious. Oh, oh, great! Is like so genuine. Yeah, it's genuine as it gets. I'm pissed. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) That's my other one. (laughs) He believed that Susan would deliberately flirt with him. I guess there was a time when is this the porno guy? Yes. Well, of course he That's thinks that. I'm, I'm going to cuss a little in this episode because it really upsets me. I'm so mad I'm going to cuss. I'm, I'm so mad I could just spit. I don't understand people who say that. Like, what does that mean? There's a lot of things I don't understand spit? in life. I don't, like, that's a relief. I'd rather punch something. Okay. Like, screw spitting. I'm going to throw hands. Woo! Yeah, tough girl. <laughs> anyway, apparently there would be times when... Susan would wax her legs. I guess there was this one instance where she waxed her legs and went up to Stephen to have him feel her leg to like see how smooth it was. My ass. And he took this to be like, oh my God, she is in love with me. And just like ran with it. Anyway, he would follow her around the house with a camcorder. He would use, and there were plenty of times that she would be like going to the bathrooms, talking on the phone, just pacing the house. And he would like sneak up and get these candid shots of her and she would have no idea. It's weird as hell. He used small mirrors to spy on her while she was in the bathroom. Weird. And he would steal her underwear from her laundry. Also weird. Read her journals. And then he wrote this creepy ass song dedicated to her that he posted on this website where he like used a pseudonym. And I have a clip of it. Oh my gosh. Are you ready? This is going to like haunt your nightmares. It's so bad. Oh my gosh. He had multiple songs like this, and Susan had no idea, but they were all about Susan. This guy was a fucking creep. What a perv. So weird. I mean, his son is married to this girl, and he's like swooning hard. I mean, it's not even swooning, it's stalking at this point. So gross. In Stephen's personal diary, he wrote, What has driven me in the past year is primarily lust. I have never lusted for a woman as I have for Susan. I take I take chances sometimes to take video clips of her, which I watch regularly. How I would love to kiss those lips. Then he went on to detail how he went through her laundry and masturbated with her underwear and photos of her twice in her presence. He wrote, the fact is, I can hardly control myself when it comes to her. Uh, Oh my God. Gross. I'm good. I don't need to hear anymore. Yeah. So in 2003, Stephen finally tells Susan about his feelings for her. And oddly enough, it's all caught on a videotape. He had his camcorder in the car. And he had no idea that it was recording. Or maybe he did. Maybe he hoped that he was going to like catch some love confession from her. But all you get is the sound, and you can hear him telling her 
about his feelings for her and her telling him that it's making her uncomfortable, that she does not feel the same way. She even at one point says, you know, my dad never even kisses me and you tried to kiss me and I was very uncomfortable with that. And, you know, I am married to your son and that's the relationship that I'm comfortable with. Like, she's making it very clear. She is not interested. Is she hot? You just saw pictures of her, right? I thought you looked up pictures of her. I mean, she's, oh, oh, yeah, okay, I saw her. Yeah, she's very pretty. I don't. It doesn't matter. She's in a. Horrible- it doesn't matter if she's hot or not. I'm just curious, so I can <laughs> picture the characters in this. I mean, I'm picturing him like a Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, he's disgusting. Doesn't, doesn't make a difference, matter. everybody. I don't care. Quit judging me. So soon after this. Josh and Susan move out and actually move to a different state in order to distance Get themselves. Get the hell away from that lunatic. From Josh's dad, yeah. So does he know about the kid? What? Does his son know about this? Yes. What? Yeah, he finds out Kick about it. Kick his dad's right? ass. Right? I know, but that doesn't happen. Okay, it gets worse. Susan kept a detailed journal, and in her journal, she often talked about the issues she was having with Josh. He stopped going to church with the family, much like his dad did in his first marriage. Um, And even though his dad made Susan super uncomfortable, he continued having a relationship with him. And I don't know how a man gets past the fact that his own dad was making advances on his daughter-in-law, creeping on her, writing songs about her, stealing her underwear, and then later we'll find find out about even more things that he was keeping of Susan's. But like, how can you willingly maintain a relationship with your dad after knowing all this? You can't. I don't... That's I where care. he's not normal, too, it sounds like. Totally not normal. Yeah. No. And you saw his pictures. He he looks like a creep. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh. I mean, you, like, you literally can look at him and know, like, something's not quite right mm-hmm. with this person. So, apparently, things between Josh and Susan started to get so bad that Susan felt the need to document some of this in secrecy. She recorded a video in July of 2008. Surveying property damage, like holes in the wall that apparently Josh had made. She showed like a bunch of jewelry that he had broken from throwing it. She details this in the videos. She recorded all of their belongings, kind of like she was taking inventory of all their assets. And she also wrote a secret will that in part said, For family and friends of Susan, all except Josh Powell, I don't trust him. I have been having extreme marital stress for three to four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail. He has threatened to skip the country and told me if we divorce, there will be lawyers. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. That's weird. She then put all of this footage in a security box that only she could access so that Josh would have no idea. And she ends up disappearing? Yeah. I already Um, know what's going to happen here, folks. Oh, I don't think I, I always say that, it. and then I never do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So on December 6th of 2009, Susan attends church with Charlie and Brayden and then walked home with a friend. That afternoon, her neighbor, Giovanna, stopped by to visit with Susan and help her untangle some yarn that she was using to crochet a blanket for Charlie. Josh, in totally rare form, decided to make dinner that night and made pancakes and eggs for everyone. Oh, great. Here goes. Here it's going to start. Here's the Looney Tune. Getting crazy. Probably going to poison the shit. So it it has, just side note, it has been reported that he, um, he, they assume he tried to poison her in her pancakes because he, like, used a separate pan. 
used separate plates, used separate batter to make her pancakes than he did for his kids. So I'm right. So it's never been proven. But I'm right. But you're probably right. Probably right. Yes. Um, but it's just never been proven. <laughs> so anyway, he brought Susan her plate and everything seemed to be good within the home. Giovanna recalled Susan at one point saying that she was getting cold. So Josh stopped what he was doing and grabbed her a blanket, which Giovanna thought was really nice and unlike the Josh that she had come to know. The Josh she'd always hear about was unwilling to cooperate in their marriage and always seemed really self-centered. At around 5 p.m., Susan decides to lay down for a nap, and and at about 5.30, Josh tells the boys to get ready to go sledding, so Giovanna leaves. Another neighbor remembers Josh returning with the boys around 8.30. Three hours later, Marco Bastidas, another neighbor, was locking up his car when he heard an alarm sounding inside the closed garage of the Powell home. And another neighbor said she heard a man and woman arguing and later told the police that she regretted not getting up and looking out the window to see where the noise was coming from. Man, I, I already got the goosebumps right now. Just because, like, you think of stuff that happens, like, have you ever been sitting inside and you hear something outside and you don't go look? Mm-hmm. And then, like, something that did happen and you wish you would have looked. Yes. Like, that exact feeling. Yes. I just am imagining myself in that shoes and that yeah. sucks. Yeah. It's really sad. And you never really expect something so huge to happen right next door to you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, something that seems maybe relatively minor, like, oh, just a little lover's quarrel, just mind my own business. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up like, oh, someone went missing and there's like a murder. And you could have had a lead on it, but you didn't get off yeah. your ass to look out the window. Yeah. How about shame. that? Shame, 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 shame. It's a crying shame, folks. So the next day, Josh's mom and sister are informed that the Powell kids did not show up to daycare that morning. Susan was always very punctual, dropping them off every day around 6.30. When no one was able to contact Josh or Susan, they called the police. Friends and family immediately assumed maybe it was carbon monoxide poisoning. So they rushed to the Powell home and broke in. They found no one inside, but they did find a bunch of box fans blowing at a wet spot on the couch and floor. What? When they contacted Susan's employer, they were informed that Susan didn't show up for work that day, and they found her purse, wallet, and ID at her house, but her cell phone was missing. Later that day, Josh finally pulls up around 5 p.m. with his boys in tow. He's immediately taken to the police station for questioning when he's unable to explain the whereabouts of his wife. He tells police that he left Susan sleeping at home shortly after midnight on December 7th to take his boys camping to Simpson Springs in western Utah, about 25 miles away. This obviously makes no sense. Why would you take your two young children camping in the middle of the night in December in Utah when it's freezing out, literally zero sub-zero temps, and you've got work and school the very next day? Like, this makes no sense, Mm -hmm. okay? This is like a huge red flag. Police actually visited the spot in Simpson Springs on December 10th, but found no evidence of the campsite that Josh described. And they, too, found it super suspicious that he would take his boys camping in the middle of the night. They also ended up finding Susan's cell phone in the van that he was driving. But when asked where Susan might be, Josh didn't have an answer for them. So on December 9th, two days after Susan goes missing... Investigators found traces of Susan's blood on the floor. They also found life insurance policies on Susan for $1.5 million 
and a handwritten letter from Susan expressing fear for her life. Then Josh started making more odd choices. He liquidated Susan's retirement accounts, canceled her regularly scheduled chiropractic appointments, and called their kids daycare to let them know that they would no longer be coming to the daycare. Police would eventually bring in the couple's oldest son, Charlie, to ask him about the camping trip. Charlie told them that Susan went with them but didn't come back with them, and one of his teachers claimed that he told her his mommy was dead and drew a picture of a van with three people in it and said mommy was in the trunk. Oh, how old's the kid? Oh, I knew you would ask that, and for some reason I didn't write it down. That's okay, they're probably like four or five or six. Really little, yeah. Investigators began to grow more and more suspicious of Josh, but couldn't find any physical evidence of what happened to Susan and whether or not Josh was involved. Common sense tells us, of course, he had something to do with it, but you can't arrest somebody based on just a hunch, unfortunately. Josh grew increasingly more uncooperative with the police, got a lawyer, and by December 24th, he was officially a person of interest in the investigation. A couple weeks later, he moved with the boys to Poyolup. See, here's that word I can't pronounce. Poyolup. Just call it P-Town. P-Town, Washington, to live with his dad and siblings. Soon after, the website SusanPowell.org was created as a way to keep her disappearance in the spotlight. But anonymous posts, believed to be written by Josh and Stephen, suggested that Susan ran off to Brazil with a reporter... To Brazil? To Brazil. They're suggesting that she ran off to Brazil with a reporter who also went missing around the same time, but from like hundreds of miles away. I think he was in Vegas, and he went missing from Vegas. And they're trying to connect. Like, you guys are grasping at fucking straws. You clearly had something to do with it. Like, don't even bother offering up your theories because it just makes you look even more guilty. So it was around this time that Josh and Stephen became more vocal about their opinions of Susan. Stephen did TV interviews where he actually had the audacity to say that Susan partook in their sexual flirting and that she enjoyed that sort of thing. Watching these interviews, your jaw just drops at the absolute delusion of this clown. Josh would tell people that Susan left on her own accord due to mental illness, but her family rejected these claims. Susan was a devoted mother. There was no way she would just abandon her babies like that. The Cox and Powell families became became bitter enemies that often engaged in public standoffs. After a police raid of the Powell home in 2011, both Josh and Steven spoke to major news outlets about the details of Susan's personal journals. So a judge issued a permanent injunction for injunction forbidding Josh and Steven from publishing any material from her personal journals and ordering them to either return or destroy any journals already published. Investigators became interested in Steven too after hearing about his unusual and inappropriate obsession with Susan. So they seized his computer and found around 4,500 images of Susan taken without her knowledge, including close-ups of specific body parts. What the hell? On September 22nd, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography after they found evidence that he wasn't only recording Susan, but other young girls and numerous other women. God, and there's pervs out there like this. Yes. Ooh. They also found a horde of personal items belonging to Susan. And when I say personal, I'm talking about used Q-tips, 
used cotton balls that it, she had allegedly what? used, and even used tampons that she discarded in the trash. And this sick fuck would dig through the trash and pull out her tampon cartridges and put them in little plastic baggies and label them. Yeah. That's why I say, like, this is beyond... Just beyond. It is like so it. beyond anything that I've read so far. And, like, I'm even currently doing research on the Night Stalker. And still, I somehow find this guy more creepy than the Night Stalker. This guy's a weirdo. Yeah. I don't like it at all. The day after Stephen was arrested, Susan's dad filed for emergency custody of the boys, which was granted, and the judge ruled that Josh would have to move out of Stephen's house if he wanted to regain custody. So Josh rents a house, but authorities allege that he only rented the house to make it appear that he moved, but he never actually moved into it. Late in 2011, Josh underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations in Washington. This These, is like years later. Uh, well, yeah, a couple years. So like, this is ongoing because they haven't found Susan. So he's still a free man though right now. Yeah. Yeah, Josh hell? still is a free man. Yeah, and even though there's all these red flags... They're still allowing him to be a parent to his children. And his dad's arrested, right? And his dad's been arrested. Is he sentenced? Or is he just chilling in the cell? I think at what? this point he was in jail, yeah. Because he did end up, end up having to serve uh, years in prison for all of this. So, But anyway, Josh underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations in Washington. These tests determined that Josh had adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record or history of domestic violence. However, the person who evaluated Josh did find it concerning that he had ongoing criminal investigations. A little and, bit of a red flag. Yeah, and failed to admit any personal shortcomings whatsoever. His behavior with his sons was overbearing, and he had persistent defensiveness and paranoia. So the initial recommendation was for Josh to have supervised visitation with his sons several times a week. So they're allowing him to see his sons but they're requiring that a social worker be present. Then this story comes to a shocking conclusion when on February 5th, 2012, a social worker named Elizabeth Griffin Hall is taking Charlie and Brayden to a supervised visit at Josh's house. Elizabeth reported that when she got to Josh's house with the boys, the boys got out of her car and ran up to the door in front of her and she couldn't keep up. Josh was waiting at the front door, ushered the kids inside, and immediately shut the door, locking Elizabeth outside. She remembers seeing a stone-faced Josh look at her and slightly shrug his shoulders before closing the door. She hears Josh say, Charlie, I have a surprise for you. She starts banging on the door, demanding that he open the door and let her in, but it's to no avail. Then she hears Brayden start crying. She begins to notice the odor of gasoline, and starts oh, backing away from the house as she dials 911. No. I got the horrible goosebumps right now. Are you going to play like a recording? Just a 911 call. Ugh. So here is the 911 call. Let's see. The Nothing like this has ever happened. 
So this 911 call is painful to listen to as you can hear the urgency in Elizabeth's voice, but the lack of urgency in the dispatchers. Dispatchers, and when he says they've got to respond to life-threatening things first, I just want to reach through the phone and <laughs> punch the guy. Like, this is life-threatening. She's trying to portray that to you and you're just like being kind of disrespectful mm, dismissive yeah and then to say like oh a deputy will contact you like no there's no time for that like you've got to send somebody and mm -hmm. i don't know um i don't know if that dispatcher still has a job i don't know what the protocol is on this but um knowing what we know now it's disappointing and infuriating to hear how this was handled because Shortly after dialing 911, Josh's house exploded with him and his two sons inside. Holy and smoke. all three were killed. When authorities notified Josh's dad in jail, he didn't seem upset by the news, but was more upset with the authorities who told him. Shortly after the incident, officials confirmed that the explosion was deliberately planned and the official cause of death for Josh, Charlie, and Brayden was determined to be carbon monoxide poisoning. But the coroner also noted that both boys had injuries on their heads and neck. A hatchet was recovered no, near Josh's body. I don't like body. this. I don't even want to hear it. I know. <laughs> and they believed that he attacked both boys until he was overcome with the smoke. Like this, so I don't usually get upset, like, you know, to cry. Like, I didn't really cry over the Chris Watts story. That was really upsetting. But for some reason, this one just makes me so so sad um this stories like this are what make it hard to cover true crime stories like this is so mind-blowing and I try to like put myself in like these type of situations because you always try to like understand what would make someone do something like that you know because the, the ultimate goal is then how do you prevent it from happening again but um anyway stories in the past I've been able to just like get through just fine but this one is just it's hard. Mm -hmm. um, friends and relatives of Josh told authorities that he had contacted them by email minutes before the incident to say goodbye. They tried to call the police and warn them that he was having suicidal thoughts. He even got a hold of his pastor to let him know where to find money that he had hidden and to shut off his utilities. Records show that Josh shut was... Off you I know. You're going to fucking explode your house. What difference does it make? They're going to get shut off. Yeah. Like... It's random. Oh, my gosh. Records show that Josh withdrew $7,000 from his bank and donated his children's toys and books to local charities the day before the incident. What a good guy. What a thoughtful, good guy. Donate your kids' toys before you annihilate them. That's... Wow. Josh named his brother Michael as his beneficiary of his life insurance policy, but on February 11th, almost two years later, Michael would take his own life by jumping off the roof of a parking garage. Gosh. Susan's parents would eventually sue the Washington Department of Social and Health Services, claiming that the agency prioritized Josh's parental rights over the safety of the children, which is something that I think happens way too often. It's one of those things where kids are put in dangerous situations because maybe the parent doesn't have a criminal record yet, but if they're showing tendencies or odd behavior, shouldn't we be erring on the side of caution? Why do we allow something to happen to the kids before, before we finally step in? This is something that I am so passionate about, 
and I obviously get emotional about because you just see it way too often. These kids are put in dangerous situations all because the state thinks that it's best for the kids to be with their parents. Well, if someone's under like trial or under the gun investigation, I feel like they, if it's that serious, yes, someone's and, missing or murdered or something, then they shouldn't be Yes. Involved. How many red flags did you need? Mm-hmm. It was red flag after red flag after red flag. So, Stephen Powell was eventually released from prison after serving seven years for his voyeurism and child porn charges, and he died of natural causes the following year, which I found to actually be really disappointing, only because I believe he deserved something worse than natural causes, preferably a horrible, violent cause. And to this day, Susan has not been found. No way. She still hasn't. Mm -hmm. That's so crazy because you think about all the murders, the stuff you read, the TV shows, the podcasts, everything. Mm-hmm. And all these people always end up getting found. Like even if it's – who's the chick at the bottom – Scott Peterson's wife. Yeah. The bottom of the bottom lake of the with, with four bricks tied to her limbs and all – but like you get found. Right. Like she washed up. And yeah. Yeah. I mean there are – it's amazing how many cases there are of people who go missing who do eventually get found. But then it's amazing how some really just never do get found. And right. they have to just be declared dead by a judge. I think well, it's like Tiger King. Um, Carol Baskin, they assume that she killed her husband, but he's never been found. See, I didn't watch that. But um, in Alamosa, Colorado last week, there was bones found mm-hmm. of a victim. from They don't know how many years ago. They can't identify him. It's just there's a bunch of bones found from people. Interesting. I haven't heard about this. Alamosa. Well, and sometimes bones, from what I understand, and I could be totally wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, bones have to be in a certain condition for you to be able to extract DNA from them. So if they're like totally dried out or if there's no bone marrow left, I think it's hard to extract DNA. And I could be so wrong. I mean, I'm not a doctor or a forensic, you know, scientist. So correct me if I'm wrong on that. But yeah, sometimes, you know, bones get found and... They don't get assigned to somebody. Plus, even if you did get DNA from these bones, you've got to have someone to match it to. So, Mm -hmm. anyway, that is the story for today's Freaky Friday episode. I promise you next Monday, this upcoming Monday when you hear this, there will be a more positive story. I will come up with something a little more lighthearted. Maybe a silly crime. That'd be good. To come back from this. That'd be good. I think you would appreciate that. Yeah. And I think the listeners would too. So thank you so much for listening. And um, please like, share, comment, review, do the things so that we can get this podcast out there. We're trying to reach more people because um, not only because of just like wanting to, you know, grow your audience, but also because stories like this, I feel are important to share, to raise awareness, Um, you know, especially cases like this where maybe laws should be, um, passed or reconsidered that, you know, maybe protect our children a little bit better. So thank you so much for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye.